Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. Dan Novi is a dream guest for us on the Perception Podcast. He combines many of the ingredients that make up the secret recipe of Perception. He is a PhD student at the MIT Media Lab, an Emmy and Visual Effects Society award-winning VFX technical supervisor, a transmedia experience designer, and former chair of the Visual Effects Society Technology Committee. What fascinates me most are the two classes he teaches at the MIT Media Lab, science fiction-inspired prototyping and indistinguishable from magic classes. Let's take a journey into the mind of Dan Novi. Welcome, Dan Novi, to the Perception Podcast. Hi, Dan. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you. It's great to be here. So why don't we uh, start at the very beginning? Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself from your earliest days? Where are you from and uh, where did you grow up? I am originally from Chicago. I grew up in the southwest suburbs. Um, and then I went downstate to UIUC. And I was originally a theater major. Uh, so I have a degree in acting and directing, BFA, uh, and then I continued on and got a MA in theater history, where I studied specifically the history of uh, the sort of technological history of the theater, uh, but I also studied shamanic performance in pre-agrarian societies. Wow. Uh, yeah. How did you get uh, interested in that? Um, I was doing a lot of work with anthropology uh, as part of the theater history, and I just got a little fascinated in sort of how there was a time when the theater and medicine and law court were all part of the same job, and that job was, you know, the shaman. So there was basically a healer, uh, and he or she also uh, decided on legal questions. Um, um, but what also, you know, used things like sleight of hand and ventriloquism in performance. Um, so there was, a, you know, elements of entertainment there. Because um, I was really looking at the origins of the theater and what I was doing and, and, and trying to find sort of interesting things we could hearken back to, uh, to bring into the theater. Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up reading a book by Brent Laurel called Computers as Theater, because uh, I was working sort of as a TA in the computer lab, uh, helping network things, helping keep things going. And um, it really got me thinking about the use of technology in the theater again. And I got very much into VR. And this was like 1993, we're talking. So mm. we had giant prey supercomputers sure. somewhere on campus that you had to sign out time on. Um, massive, massive SGIs. This is like before, you know, the even the Indigo Impact kind of smaller boxes. Um, and I had this crazy idea where I wanted to do the first production of Waiting for Godot in VR hmm. because the only requirements for the set for Waiting for Godot are a tree and a paper cutout moon. And I'm like, that's about how many pixels or how many polygons we can push right now and have it look, you know, somewhat good. So I taught myself how to do, you know, 3D modeling and texturing and animation and rendering. And um, I quickly, quickly discovered that the hardware was not really ready to do the kind of level of work that I wanted. Sure, this is the early 90s again? Yeah, it's right. still the early 90s. Right. And 
honestly, VR at that point was still a very single experience. Nobody was trying to do group VR, which is, you know, essentially what theater is. Um, you know, you have to have an experience, a, a whole bunch of people experience it together. Um, so that kind of wasn't working. But I had taught myself all these skills. So when I moved out to L.A. after graduating, I ended up in the visual effects industry. Um, this was a time, you know, there, there were no sort of VFX schools back then. Um, there was no sort of standardized pipeline even of ways of doing things. Every house kind of had their own recipes for how they dealt with certain kinds of file formats like Cineon and mm -hmm. each, you know, certain houses were still writing their own, say, 3D software or compositing right. packages thing. Nothing had sort of settled down or standardized yet. And it was kind of like the Wild West. And sure. I really enjoyed that aspect of it uh, early on, figuring out like, gosh, how are we going to do these water shaders? How are we going to do these, you know, whatever the effects uh, were called for? So that's how I ended up in Hollywood doing visual effects. But mm -hmm. I always kind of in the back of my mind wanted to continue this idea of sort of having a less passive, more engaged audience uh, and create experiences for them like that. Uh, and that's kind of how I ended up here at the Media Lab. Can you talk a little bit about your path to getting there from Hollywood to Cambridge? Yeah. So I was worked in, in visual effects for about 17, 18 years. Um, and toward the end, uh, as as the sort of FX industry's business model was breaking, um, I got into doing uh, transmedia production. So I was working on things like alternate reality games. Um, I was doing some really AR, early AR stuff for that. Um, again, trying to get to sort of an what is the what is the Venn diagram overlap of film video game, theater, immersive experience, uh, etc. You know, what is that tiny little area in the middle that has aspects of all of them? Right. And then how do we create tools so storytellers can deploy those, create them and deploy them easily? Um, I, I often joke that when you're running an alternate reality game, it's like dungeon mastering for 3,000 people live, you know in real time over the internet and you can go crazy if you don't sort of have ways to, to sort and parse and filter uh, when you're playing multiple characters over Twitter or, or something like that. And so as, as more and more I wanted to get to figure out this storytelling technology and possibly even new formats of stories, new mediums themselves, um, I was sort of pulling away from doing visual effects and was doing more and more developing, actually writing code, uh, which, which I had done. I had done a lot of sort of pipeline code uh, in our facility, uh, which again, I had to teach myself. Uh, so, so I'm not the best coder in the world. My code right. looks really janky, but it works. Um, and so I wanted to go somewhere that would sort of give me the opportunity to work on these new mediums and new technologies. and. Really, the MIT Media Lab was you know, the first and foremost choice. Uh, you know, I, I had some backup plans, but um, I contacted them. Uh, I went through the application process, did a bunch of interviews, and um, they let me in, and they've given me the opportunity. And I've done some really fun stuff. Um, 
you always sort of have things in mind when you get to a place, and then the place changes you yep. as well. And uh, I've enjoyed that as well. So I, I realized I was thinking really small when I got here, and suddenly it was like, oh, we should take that idea that you have and limitless it. possibilities. Yeah. There's, there's so many parallels um, with your path and, and your passions with, with what we do here. It's, uh, it's really fascinating to me. As you know, we do, we do a lot of visual effects for Hollywood to this day, but we're also getting more and more involved with real technology companies and using sort of the inspiration we get from the movies and trying to um, use that knowledge with real-world technology challenges, user experiences, and so forth. I would love to get into a little bit more about your uh, science fiction inspired prototyping class that sure. you're um, leading at MIT. Can you give us a, a little bit of an overview and a background, the genesis of how it started and, uh, and then? Yeah, uh, so the class actually started um, as a discussion between me and a now graduated student uh, named uh, Sophia Bruckner uh, and Joe P, Joe Paradiso, who runs the Responsive Environment Group here at the Media Lab. Um, Sophia did a version of the class at the Rhode Island School of Design that was a design-based version of the class. Mm -hmm. uh, she is a huge science fiction fan, uh, as, as, as I am and as Joe P is. And uh, I've taken several classes from Joe P, and when you're doing your sort of uh, prototype um, critique at the end of the class. You're talking about the thing uh, that you've built. He will often say, oh, that's very similar to, say, the system, the AR system that Werner Vinge uses in uh, Rainbow's End, or you know, some, some very similar like that. Mm -hmm. And I realized he had this encyclopedic knowledge of the sort of technologies that existed within science fiction, not just the stories of the authors, but like actual like things in there. And I said, hey, Joe, maybe we should put together like the Joe P. science fiction reading list for everyone here at the lab. So particularly the, the books that have good examples of technology that are sort of within reach that we could do with a little bit of development. Uh, we were talking and then Sophia was like, oh, that's a great idea. I did this class at RISD and I had her describe the class and I was like, hold on, we have got to make this an engineering based class. We have got to sort of redesign it um, so that we can get science fiction authors or, uh, to come visit and, and get science fiction to be read more widely uh, at the lab. And we were surprised that there, there was actually not a lot of reading of science fiction, even among the students. So we wanted to sort of amplify that because, you know, science fiction is a way of, of prototyping everything uh, within your head. It's sort of like the first prototype is, is you think it up and sort of write it up as a three sentence science fiction story. Mm -hmm. uh, and at that point, the thing exists, right? It, you, you haven't pulled out the, the Arduinos or the glue gun or the duct tape yet, but it, it exists. You've called it into being, as Ellen Moore would say. And so we, we put together a syllabus and we approached uh, the, the sort of the student or uh, academic side of the media lab because there's the sort of research side and then there's the uh, program of media arts and scientists or sciences and they said, well, yeah, the syllabus looks good. We're going to we're going to let you teach this class. Um, now, as a research assistant here at the lab, we're not required to teach. Um, but it was just something that was just so enticing hmm. that that both Sophia and I uh, and Joe, as our faculty advisor, uh, just felt we had to do. Um, and the the very first class was really well received. It was um, it was full. I mean, it was like we had to actually turn people away because we couldn't fit in the classroom anymore. We had too many projects that we 
uh, didn't have time to actually critique everything. Um, and we've since offered the class um, kind of every other year. Um, uh, Sophia graduated. She is now a full professor uh, at the University of Michigan mm -hmm. uh, in Ann Arbor, and she is teaching sort of a version of the class as well. So the class is sort of franchised off already, uh, and and hopefully, you know, we tell other people it's like, yeah, if you want to, you want to teach this idea, go ahead. We would love to see this sort of science fiction prototyping, sci-fi to sci-fab. Um, ideas spread throughout, you know, all sorts of places. Absolutely. Take, take it. Um, what, what is, uh, can you give an overview a little bit of the process uh, sure. that you, you know, you ascribe in the class and that the, the students go through? Yeah, the, the basic um, way things operate is we assign uh, a science fiction reading or film or TV show or a video game. We're super medium agnostic as far as, because there's so much good science fiction that aren't just novels. Sure. Um, uh, and usually it will be like in a topic area. So we could be exploring, say, AR or, or matter replication or, or some kind of area. And, and we'll do a, a collection of readings. Sometimes it's a full novel, sometimes it's a bunch of short stories, or sometimes it's relevant bits of novels that we've pulled out. Uh, and then we discuss it. And then we say, okay, I want you to pick something in the reading uh, and make it real. Uh, we want you to bang it together uh, as, as a functional prototype. Uh, and then we'll, we'll define prototype pretty widely because, you know, sometimes you <laughs> we can't actually figure out how to replicate matter. But if you, say, figure out uh, a way of moving, say, the stage of a 3D printer in steps smaller than anyone else has figured out how to do, that's a step towards a type of matter replication. So that would count. Um, or um, very much in a sort of design fiction way, if you were to create something that operated uh, and looked and functioned and gave you the experience of day-to-day -day life with a matter replicator. Like if you came with something that looked like a microwave oven and you hit a button and suddenly a uh, cup of hot Earl Grey tea uh, materialized inside um, and, and you did that convincingly and say, well, you know, is it going to be that easy? And then you can lead the discussion. That would also be a valid um, uh, project uh, for, for that assignment. So it can sort of range on a spectrum from being a, a design fiction that gives you the experience to all the way up to, hey, I figured out matter replication. I'm, I'm headed to Stockholm uh, to, to pick up my tux and my Nobel Prize. So anywhere in between there, we're happy with. What are some of the, the standout projects that, uh, that you've seen develop? Um, one of my f absolute favorites, uh, uh, Dan Fitzgerald, who is in Hiroshi Ishii's group, um, he, as a child, wanted to build um, the Predator gun. So in, in the film Predator, the, the alien, the Predator himself, has a shoulder-mounted laser-guided autocannon, essentially. Uh, and Dan was captivated by that as a kid. So his final project for the class, he literally built an eye-tracked laser on a gimbal and then added uh, uh, servos and a Nerf gun. So he has a, a sort of a webcam built into a pair of glasses and it tracks his eye and it does the sort of reverse transform to figure out where he's looking. So you can see him scanning the room and there's laser dots coming from his shoulder that are 
meeting at the point where he's his, his gaze falls on the wall and then he has a little tiny little machine learning algorithm that can tell the difference between when he's normally blinking and when he wants to sort of squinch his eye to launch a nerf dart wow. so essentially he built the thing that he's been wanting to since he was a child and it worked and it was it was quite beautiful and it was we were we were all rather impressed with that mm. You guys hear the uh, the term design thinking a lot these days. It just seems like such oh, yeah. a buzzword. Um, you know, and what we do at Perception is sort of this science fiction thinking, which mm-hmm. is like the, the next step, uh, in mm-hmm. my opinion. How do you uh, see science fiction thinking um, complementing traditional design thinking processes, or does it replace it? How do you see them working together? Um, I definitely don't think it replaces it. I think it amplifies it and it gives you a sort of framework and a clear path forward. So you can do a lot of design thinking uh, and you can come to a lot of uh, you have a lot of points where like the rubber has to hit the road now. We have to sort of test this out and see if, see if what we've been talking about for the last you know four hours uh, in this design thinking workshop. Uh, will actually lead somewhere. And I think science fiction thinking, this this idea of like, okay, let's throw this both into, say we have a real world problem that we're working on, you can, you can diverge at that point and say, let's think of this technology, put it into a science fiction setting and see where it goes. And then we can continue that on by taking where that went and start prototyping physically with it. Mm-hmm. So it gives you this opportunity to start really playfully um, putting things together um, well, with like sort of a clear roadmap forward. Whereas mm-hmm. some design thinking, it's like it's very, it's very broad, it's very general, uh, and you try to sort of whittle that down. Um, but with the science fiction prototyping uh, sort of attached to that, it gives you a, a good goal and a framework to to actually start putting something together. Yeah, and it also it's it's it seems bigger. Like science fiction thinking really is about building the whole world of the yeah. future. Yeah. And not just you know one particular product or, or experience in it. It's it's really figuring out how the entire you know world might look with certain new innovations or technologies. Yeah, and that was an advance that we actually took with the class uh, the last time we we taught it. So um, the last session, uh, I now co-teach it with uh, Joost Bonson, who's uh, from the Media Lab here. And instead of saying, okay, I want you to, I want you to read Diamond Age and I want you to build something in it, we actually took the first sort of half of the semester and we used it as a world-building workshop. So we kind of inverted uh, the first half of the semester. We said, we want you to create what you think the world of 2049 is or, or 2050 um, and we chose that year because it was as far from where we were now uh, as when Blade Runner had come out in 1982 so we started looking forward to um, you know the, this world of, of 2049 and we realized that it was almost as much fun to build a science fiction prototype out of the world that you had created um, supported by uh, the work of all of these authors. And you could sort of see once you were doing it, how they uh, had had pulled their worlds together. And we actually had some you know Skype interviews with authors about world building. And so the students kind of put together a science fiction universe of their own, each one. But they're all extrapolated from real world sort of curves. So we looked at things like Moore's Law, we looked at uh, adoption and diffusion curves of different technologies. Uh, and then we sort of extrapolated them out to 2049 uh, and then at some point in there somebody would find like 
an opportunity for like if I built this thing now, I could in the real world actually adjust this curve so that it would be available in 2049. So it was a really interesting sort of self-recursive exercise mm. of looking into the future, seeing what was needed, building a thing that was needed, and seeing if that thing actually uh, like affected the real world. Wow. So, you know, as if the, the, the science fiction, the films, and the technology weren't enough to parallel uh, my personal passions, I'm a lifelong student of magic. I've been practicing sleight of hand since I was old enough to hold a deck of cards. I love it so much. It's one of the reasons I actually named this company Perception. Uh, and, the, and the walls here are even decorated with vintage Houdini and Thurston, the great posters. If you ever visit, you'll, you'll see immediately. Oh, yes. I, I love those. And I know you are a fan as well. And Absolutely. you teach another very fascinating class at MIT, mm -hmm. which is inspired by the Arthur C. Clarke quote. Please mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that course. Yeah, so the, the class is called Indistinguishable From, and the Clark quote is, you know, any advanced technology is sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So it is a class about magic, uh, and it was originally designed as a sister class to the science fiction prototyping class. So it would be science fiction in the fall, magic in the spring. Um, and the very first idea was, uh, was uh, let's read fantasy literature, say Lord of the Rings, and build things that we find in there. Um, because there were some people that, even though you know we wanted more science fiction reading, um, they just they enjoyed fantasy more than science fiction. And I, I consider them isomers of the same sort of element. They're just left-hand and right-hand branching. Um, you can kind of say that magic is kind of like science fiction where you don't have to explain the technology. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're reading token uh, and say you want to build a scrying pool or you want to build how the Palantir works or, you know, why does the ring of power not have two factor authentication? Literally, why can anyone pick it up and, and interact with it? And it's like, it's like one of the worst designs ever, if you think about it that way. Um, but then we realized that there was so many different wonderful definitions of magic. There are so many different types of magic that we started to say, okay, let's actually go through all the types of magic and see how um, they apply to what we do. How do they apply to prototyping? How do they apply to, say, uh, user experience design or user interface design? How do they apply to displays or, or output or perception, mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned? Um, and, and once we realized it's like, oh, we can explore all of these different things, then the class really came together. And the class was first taught with um, Greg Borenstein, who was a, a student here. Uh, he's since graduated and is working in the video game industry. And um, we put together again a syllabus. Uh, the class was well attended. Um, got some great, great projects out of that. I have since uh, continued on teaching the class with my PI as my co-teacher because he is also a lifelong fan of magic. Hmm. Uh, and then we have Marco Tempest, who oh, sure. uh, is, is sort of our. He is a director's fellow here at the Media Lab, and he is sort of our professional uh, advisor. So he's he will a technology Skype magician. Yeah, he's, 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 he calls himself a cyber illusionist. Right. And it, it, one of the great things about how he works, yes, he uses drones, he uses computers, um, but it's very clear that he, the, the computer isn't doing the magic for him. He's just using the computer the way, say, he would use a deck of cards. Right. So a deck of cards is a, is a type of printed technology. It's a medium. Uh, and, you know, he's explored a lot of magic with that. And it's like, let's figure out what we can do with, say, OpenCV and, and machine learning algorithms to be able to uh, 
you know, figure out uh, ways of creating moments of delight and wonder mm -hmm. where it's very clear that the magician is still doing the trick, the computer isn't doing the trick. So um, we, we heavily, heavily rely on Peter Lamont's um, magic theory book. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, that really informs the class and informs a lot of my own work and this idea of, of effect before method. Mm -hmm. So this idea that, that you figure out what the effect is first. And, and, and then work backwards from there, reverse yeah. engineer it. Then figure out what technology, because it, you may indeed not even have the technology to do that effect, and that will lead to innovation of, of the creation of that technology. Whereas a lot of sort of prototyping and hackathons will sort of hold up a VR headset, you know, an Oculus or, or a Vive, and say, we're going to make something of this. Uh, and I'm like, well, that's kind of backwards. You're, you're handing me a method, and you don't know what the effect is that you want. It's a solution um, without a problem, basically. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, if you figure out what the effect is, what is the audience actually going to see? What are they going to feel? What are they experiencing? And then you sort of figure out, oh, wait, there's a very famous, uh, say, uh, optical illusion that I can I can pull into here. I can build this as a Pepper's Ghost, or I can build Keller's Blue Room, or I can, you know, I can do this on a small scale, or I can do it near to eye. And that gives you the sort of, like, road uh, and tools that you need to achieve that effect. Wow, you, you must have the two most popular classes on campus. You sound One of them, the, the uh, magic class, is actually available on MIT OpenCourseWare. So the syllabus oh, is there, the reading is there, the assignments are there. You can just go to MIT OpenCourseWare and you can actually uh, you can actually look through that one and, and take it yourself, kind Great of at your own know. pace. So, what are some companies or industries that are currently putting you know these science fiction principles into practice and doing it well? Um, I spent a summer at Magic Leap, um, mm -hmm. and they have the word magic right in their title. Sure. <laughs> um, and I, they understand the hard, hard problems of, of how sort of uh, a mixed reality um, interface and user experience is going to be. They, they, they are not shying away from it. Uh, and while I was there, I was able to... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll use the word infect, <laughs> kind of in a positive way here. Mm -hmm. uh, these ideas of the science fiction prototyping and and magical experience design. Uh, in fact, they had uh, they had me give a Tuesday talk as they, which are broadcast to the whole company. All of the other satellite offices around the the country uh, tune in as well, and all of the workers that will actually come and and sit in a in a room and have a presentation. And they're all on different topics, but um, I of course gave mine on the two classes. Classes and um, the Q and A uh, session afterwards went on for about three hours. It was wow. very clear that I had I had resonated something in their organization, and um, lots of people would start coming up to me after. Uh, you know, I work at a standing desk, so I'm always kind of standing out in the middle of the you know the room, kind of open and approachable, uh, and people would just come up and start saying, "Oh, I, I had this idea," and you really inspired this, and um, and so I think they kind of there was something that already existed in their organization uh, that I was able to sort of activate, maybe just slightly. Um, so I think they're uh, on the road to doing something properly and well. Amazing. Is there uh, any industries you could think of that could use more of this uh, type of thinking? I think a, a lot of the other sort of um, AR and VR companies could use a little bit more sort of um, magical thinking. Mm -hmm. um, they could put a little bit more 
um, uh, of of what is the user actually going to be feeling when they're experiencing, rather than just right. sort of hacking together something in Unity and, and putting it out there and hope it hits. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am glad to see that immersive theater companies like Sleep No More are now adopting um, at their headquarters in England, they're sort of testing ground. Um, we at the Media Lab did a couple of collaborations with them and, and they now sort of see the possibilities of adding well-used fluid and invisible technologies in their immersive theater productions. Um, so I think as we're seeing a little bit more of these sort of escape room uh, and immersive theater uh, uh, mediums, the ability to harness technologies and create new technologies that allow them to create better escape experiences or, or, or better immersive theater um, that create, again, that those moments of magic and wonder and delight when, once you've solved it or, or once you've pieced together the story or you're standing in a room where something amazing happens. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't take a lot of technology. Sometimes it's just a couple of sensors and a couple of actuators. Um, and the beautiful thing about those is, in, in our research group, we, we like to say, you know, yes, there's technology, but the technology should always be in support of the experience. And so we want the technology to be absolutely invisible. We want it to just be, get out of the way and give you this experience. And I think that's, that's an industry that uh, allows for that kind of uh, uh, innovation and, and creative technological thinking, because you can sort of say, we don't want you to look at behind the curtain, you know mm-hmm. clearly that something is going on, but this seems like magic, uh, and, and people can, people can, uh, you know, they can suspend their disbelief pretty well. I mean, they do it when they watch films. They do it when they watch TV. When you're standing in a room and, and something live is happening, and you're experiencing it with a whole bunch of other people, um, and that and that whatever that thing is just is amazing and utterly beautiful and you all stand around just looking at each other like, did we just all experience that together? Um, you know, we don't want you to see the film projector or, or the optics or, or, or however we're pulling that uh, illusion off with. We just want you to have an amazing magical experience. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between uh, design and engineering? You know, do you have any... Mm-hmm thoughts on convincing engineers to try new things that might be outside their comfort zone you know it's a it's an eternal struggle right between yeah yeah the, uh, the builders and the and the designers so here at the media lab we have um a sort of glyph that we, we like to look at and it actually has artist scientist engineer and designer on it and neri oxman from the mediated matters group has actually put this together into the glyph operates by each of these sort of domains feeding into the next one and then recursing on themselves. So a good media lab researcher and a good media lab uh, project will require that you at some time put on the hat of the artist, the engineer, the designer, uh, 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 and the scientist. So you're going to be wearing... Yeah, at some point you need to be in each of those um, to actually get onto the next the next phase. Um, and sort of like engineer and design, you know, design makes engineering human, right? It, it's where that sort of interfaces. You, you create something that, you know, solves a problem, ideally, uh, or, or suggests um, a, a, a bigger future, but then you really need the design principles 
for that to be able to interface with the human experience. So you might not um, say have given as an engineer too much thought about you know where how the buttons are places if you're using buttons would it be better if this was voice activated versus non-voice activated um and you step back and you put on your designer hat and you quickly realize like oh I, i've made something that works but i've made it that say it only works if you um have two hands uh it only this this doesn't work for say um you know blind people um or it's just uh, a very, say, Spartan interface, and you could put in some design principles that would actually make it more attractive and useful. Mm -hmm. you, you want your user to want to use the thing that you've just engineered. Uh, and you can use design to do that, too. Um, so, but then also, it's like you can push that into the, the realm of art, and, and you can actually get some good science. Uh, you can actually study how, now that you've got something that people want to use, how do they use it? How much do they use it? How long do they use it? How, you, know, you can actually start answering scientific questions with it. And again, that brings it around. Once you, once you start asking more questions based on the science that you've pulled out of the thing you built, then you can say, oh, wait, here's this other thing we need to, to build that we can uh, then iterate this entire process over again. Where do you find inspiration, Dan? I find inspiration, uh, of course, in, in science fiction um, uh, works. Um, some days I will just go to, say, uh, some of the concept art sites, Yep. Uh, and I will just randomly start clicking on, on uh, production design work. Um, I, I sort of love the, this early conceptual design stage when, when things are still sort of watercolor sketches. Mm -hmm. um, you can see an idea is sort of formed, but it's really just sort of broadcasting potential. Mm -hmm. um, so I will just sometimes uh, just go deep down a rabbit hole. So sites like This Is Glossal or, or, or Creators Project um, or even just uh, doing a web search for things like processing or open frameworks. So these sort of creative coding ideas and then just finding projects that uh, uh, are, are inspiring uh, that somebody has, has started. Um, I find this to be incredibly uh, uh, inspiring for me. Hmm. So what are you currently working on that you're most excited about? I am currently working on my, my PhD dissertation, which I have to be done with very soon. Um, and everyone gets to the point where like the, the PhD project is like the last thing you want to be working on uh, because you just want it to go away. So the only way the only way out is through at this point. Um, but I'm still excited very much by when the idea. When is it uh, due by? Um, I, I should be done by the end of the summer. Oh, wow. Okay. It's coming up. Leading a little bit into um, fall semester. Just slightly, but um, it, it's um, essentially I've created the discipline of programmable synthetic hallucination. Uh, I realized a lot of my work, um, be it in theater or puppetry or uh, visual effects or gaming, um, really leaned toward this idea of creating experiences for people in their minds, right? They were sort of very coarse forms of hallucination. Hmm. Uh, and then I was reading uh, Philip K. Dick, of course, and looking at things like in Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, mm -hmm. there is the Penfield mood organ, which of course didn't make it into the film of Blade Runner as a huge technology, part of the technology of the novel, but it, it just 
didn't seem to fit in some way. Uh, and in the novel, the, the mood organ is, uh, allows you to dial any mood you want to have. And I started thinking about that seriously, looking at different types of neurostimulation. It's like, how and where would we stimulate the brain to be able to do that? Can I, you know, say, stimulate the amygdala and get a fear response? Is there ways of um, stimulating the prefrontal cortex um, so you can have some kind of mood boost? Um, can we create something that we would call electroceuticals? Um, so you wouldn't have to sort of uh, chemically alter uh, your brain uh, through medication. Um, can we extremely target areas of the brain uh, so you don't have to bathe your entire brain in, in uh, a chemical in some way? Um, and so we're figuring out what we could build as an actual prototype of uh, a thesis project. We realized that we can induce... Uh, a magnetophosphine in your visual field. So if wow. you've ever stood up very fast or got hit on the back of the head, you'd see these sort of like little silver sparkly kind of things. Um, those are called phosphines. So you can also rub your eyes and get a retinal phosphine, sort right. of those glowing fireworky kind of things. Um, so there's an area of your brain back in your visual cortex where the where the optic nerves are actually going in, they are laid out in the same mapping as uh, the photoreceptors in your retina. And so if I can stimulate um, one of these areas uh, directly in the visual cortex, you will perceive it as if it's coming from your visual field. So we basically get a neuron to fire. Uh, and you see essentially a bright pixel in your visual field. And as I raster the stimulation around, that pixel ideally looks like it's sort of moving in space. Um, it's very coarse right now. It's very difficult to actually stimulate. Um, you need to stimulate very few neurons, and, and right now we're, we're stimulating a whole bunch of neurons. So the, the pixel itself is rather large, uh, but we can translate it. We can move it up, down, left, and right. So it's sort of a single pixel display with two degrees of freedom. Um, and, and that's good enough uh, for the PhD, just wow. proving that we can do this. So, I can't wait to see this. It sounds <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. We're, it's, it's, um, it's almost done. Uh, it's not quite through um, IRB approval yet, uh, the Institutional Review Board, so I have only been able to experience uh, these uh, myself. So I'm allowed to put my, my device on my own head. I am not yet allowed to put it on anyone else's head. Gotcha. Uh, but we're very, very close to, uh, to having uh, IRB approval and being able to do some user studies. So say somebody is um, sight-blind but not cortex-blind, Mm -hmm. meaning that their blindness comes from something in the eye, not the, the brain. Um, I can right now give them navigation aids. I can actually guide a blind person around a building um, by being able to say left, right, stop, left, right, move forward. Um, say or, or say a, um, a fireman uh, with one of these stimulation units sort of built into the helmet. You know, they may be in an absolutely dark smoke-filled room, but again, I can still give them navigation aids. Um, I can move them you know, through a map because the, the, the pixel appears to be coming from, you know, at arm's length out in the, out in the room, but it's actually coming from their brain. So, you know, smoke and darkness don't matter. Wow. So Dan, I, I just want to thank you so much. This was really a fascinating conversation. Where can people find you online? Um, I'm available at just novison.com. Uh, that's yeah, kind of need to update that. Uh, I'm available on the uh, the Media Lab website. I have a you know a student page there as well. Um, 
you can sort of see my VFX background at IMDb. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and of and course, the socials. You could, uh, just at Novison uh, on all of them. Yeah, so Great. Novison on Twitter, um, Instagram, I believe I'm Novison42, because Novison was already taken. No, no, how. <laughs> uh, I know how that is. And, yeah. And um, and then really the two classes. So if you go to scifab.media.mit.edu and indistinguishablefrom.media.mit.edu, you can see a lot of uh, the student projects and, and the syllabuses are available uh, there as well. I strongly encourage everybody to do that. I, I've gotten lost in those sites myself, just digging through all the amazing work. Excellent. Really, uh, really great stuff, Dan. Thank you so much for being a guest today, and we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thank you so much. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode. Thank you.